Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we're in chapter seven of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. Chapter seven is titled The Five Precepts, A Householder's Guide to Daily Practice. In this chapter, we learn the five precepts to help us significantly reduce our unwholesome gamma. In this chapter, People will oftentimes associate the five precepts to things like commandments or rules or even sins if you've studied other traditions. But that's not the way that the Buddha taught the five precepts at all. I'm going to be sharing with you his actual words of what he taught during his lifetime related to the five precepts and help you understand that the five precepts are guidance in order to train our mind and actively eliminate certain unwholesome qualities from the mind. There isn't any being here that's going to punish us or reward us for practicing these five precepts. That's why they're not commandments or rules or any kind of sin that you might end up breaking a sin and getting some kind of punishment as a result. Instead, the way that I teach this is that by learning and practicing these five precepts, it's going to actively train the mind in order to improve the condition of the mind and guide you along this path to making more and more wholesome decisions. So I'd like to thank all of you guys for joining today's class as we dive into the five precepts. In order to talk about the five precepts, it's important to first discuss the natural law of gamma. Because as you probably remember, when we talk about the Eightfold Path and a lot of the other teachings of the Buddha, I always connect it to this natural law of gamma because that's the real heart of what the Buddha taught in terms of how his teachings are all arranged. I call the Buddhist teachings the natural laws of existence. Well, as those natural laws of existence that the mind is unaware of, that we go through life being unaware of these natural laws, and we make these unwise decisions that lead to unwholesome results, these natural laws of existence at the heart of those is this natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result. So as we talk about the five precepts today, always keep in mind that what we're discussing here is this cause and effect or this action and result, essentially the results of our decisions. Because when we make wise, wholesome decisions, this is gonna lead to wholesome outcomes. And when we make unwise decisions, 
based on unwholesome things, it's going to lead to unwholesome outcomes. So that's why when you look at the five precepts and when you dive into them deeply, it's important that you always keep in mind that there's specific guidance around these five precepts in order to help guide you closer and closer to this clarity of mind, this enlightened mental state where the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, where you don't have any kind of discontentedness in the mind whatsoever. The way that you can think about the natural law of gamma is it's your life, it's your decisions, and your results. Based on how you choose to conduct your life and the decisions that you make in your life is going to produce certain results for you in terms of if you have a life partner or not. And if you do have a life partner, what's that relationship like? You're going to see the results or the outcomes of the decisions you make with your children and how you interact with your children. If we interact with them in peaceful and loving ways with respect and politeness, that's what's going to come back to us when we interact with our children that way. And conversely, if we interact in other ways with harshness, aggression, ego, or any kind of other aspects of mind like that, that's what's going to come back to us from our children because they're learning that from us. The same thing with our friends and our family and our coworkers. As we go through our life and we're making various decisions about our intentions, our speech, and our actions, when we have a purified mind that the Buddha teaches as part of this path, then we're interacting in the world in a way that is harmless. There's no harm. And therefore, harm doesn't come back to us. But conversely, if we do harm in the world and we do things like what we're going to talk about in the five precepts, then putting these things out into the world, then harmful things are going to come back to us. So in our class today, not only am I going to describe the precept and use the actual words of the Buddha, but I'm going to go through detail by detail and show you how to apply this precept to your actual life. And as we always do, I'm going to be opening up for questions for each individual precept. After I teach each individual precept, I'll open things up for you guys to ask any questions about applying this particular precept to your life. And the way that you ask questions is you put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment sections. Our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and our moderators will call on you and be sure your question gets asked during the class by you asking it yourself or any follow-up questions that you have. So let's look at kind of the five precepts kind of in general and talk about what are the five precepts. Because as you heard me mention, these aren't commandments. They're not rules. They're not sins or anything like that. Instead, they're training guidelines. They're guidance to help you train this mind to move closer and closer to this enlightened mental state where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing any discontentedness ever again. So these are to help you reduce your unwholesome gamma production and assist you in creating this pure mind and this pure life. Well, as you just heard me mention that gamma, it isn't this mystical, magical thing. It's not this punishment and rewards. Instead, it's the results of our decisions. That when we're making wise, wholesome decisions, then wholesome things will happen for us. We will have wholesome outcomes as a part of our life. But if the mind is polluted and we choose to do things that are part of the five precepts, then by us not practicing these five precepts, it actually creates havoc in our life. And we end up causing harm in the world, so therefore harm comes back to us. 
The five precepts are going to significantly reduce your unwholesome gamma production, but it doesn't eliminate your unwholesome gamma production. It's the eightfold path that completely and entirely eliminates all unwholesome gamma production through only producing wholesome gamma. The five precepts plug into the eightfold path. It's the eightfold path that lays out the complete and perfect path to enlightenment, to extinguish all unwholesome gamma production, all unwholesome decisions by learning and practicing the eightfold path, you will be making wiser and wiser decisions based on wholesomeness and therefore wholesome things will happen. The five precepts plug into the eightfold path as part of the moral conduct as a way to help you further understand the eightfold path in more detail. But it's the eightfold path that's going to completely extinguish all unwholesome gamma production by teaching you how to make wise decisions and only produce wholesome decisions, which will produce wholesome results, i.e. wholesome gamma. As these five precepts plug into the Eightfold Path, they're all based on this understanding of harmlessness, of not causing harm in the world. Because if we cause harm through our intentions, our speech, our actions, then that harm is going to be returned to us. So these five precepts are helping you to knock down a lot of the harms that we're causing in the world. These teachings of the five precepts are things that you've probably learned from your primary caregivers, depending on how you grew up, whether mom and dad or grandma and grandpa or aunts and uncles, different people around you were teaching you various lessons as you learned growing up. They might have taught you some of the basics and some of the basic things that you'll hear people translate a simple translation of the five precepts they'll say no killing no stealing no sexual misconduct no lying no intoxicants but this is a very very simplistic translation that doesn't really fully illuminate what the buddha was talking about today when we use the words of the buddha and actually study with his actual words you'll get to see more detail about what he was actually talking about and then when I go through point by point by point and kind of show you some things in the world and how we can apply these precepts to decisions that we're making in the world today, then you'll be able to see how to really truly use these precepts to your benefit. Because as you understand these precepts, it's important to understand how they actually work in the world to train the mind and through things that you do with the five precepts in terms of if you, if you practice them or not, what are the results? What are the potential outcomes of things if you do practice them and if you don't practice them? So I'm gonna be discussing those with you today. And depending on your background, you most likely have done these things, just like everyone else. We've all done these things before and you'll have some ways to reflect back and be like, oh yeah, when I did those things, it did turn out really horrible for me. Or when I don't do these things, I tend to have really wholesome results. So this is part of the learning and then you can reflect back on your life and then you can improve your practice and make wiser and wiser decisions in line with the five precepts. So let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions on some of the basics of the five precepts and kind of what the five precepts are. Again, the way that you ask questions is just put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or electronically raise your hand. Hi, David. I just wanted to clarify my understanding of what the precepts are. So 
essentially rather than rules, they're pure statements on comment generation. Is that correct? And they're essentially saying that if you violate these precepts, then you'll have a, it'll affect your mind in such a way that it will be harder to attain enlightenment and you'll have a, and have a peaceful mind. Is that what it is? You can think of it like that. I tend to like to think of it in a positive way of like, by practicing these precepts, it's going to improve the wisdom that I have and the decision-making that I have. I'm going to be making wiser decisions in the world, so therefore more wholesome outcomes are going to be happening for me. So as you guys know with the Four Noble Truths and other things that we talked about, that it's craving, desire, attachment that is causing the mind to be discontent. And we cause our own anger, sadness, frustration, guilt, shame, fear, and all these other things. And we're working as part of this path to enlightenment to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, as well as what we're going to talk about next week when we talk about anger and ignorance. We're going to be talking about how to eliminate those from the mind as well, which are beyond what we've talked about so far. But it would be really hard to train your mind to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy if you're doing things in the world that is causing harm and every time you turn around, something dramatic is happening in your life as a result of some of the things that you're going to hear today. So for example, I'll just take a simple one like the Buddha talks about not stealing or not taking from people. So if we're training our mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, but yet we have this craving to take material objects from other people and steal, well, it's going to be really hard for you to train your mind to eliminate discontentedness if you're going around stealing and you've got people coming to your house, knocking on your door, you've got police officers at your door, knocking on your door, trying to find out you know, what you've stolen, putting you in handcuffs, carrying you off to jail, all these other things, going to court, hiring lawyers to defend you in court. So there's these real simple precepts that the Buddha taught as a way to knock down some of the more significant unwholesome decisions that we make. And by knocking down those significant unwholesome decisions, then we have this wisdom to make these wiser decisions that lead to wholesome outcomes. And whenever the Buddha had a new student come to him and say, I'm interested in ordaining or I'm interested in being a household practitioner and learning your teachings, the first thing that he would always guide them in is improving their moral conduct. There's all these aspects of this path to enlightenment that we need to learn and we need to reflect on and we need to practice in order to move on this path to enlightenment. But it's our moral conduct that is causing the harm in the world to other beings. And by causing harm to others, that harm is going to come back to us when we see people come chase us down to beat us up because we've been attacking them and we've been fighting with them or if we've been lying or cheating or stealing or having some of these other challenges that we talk about with the five precepts, it's going to be very difficult for us to clean up our life practice if we don't first address the moral conduct. So the Buddha would oftentimes teach the moral conduct aspect of his teachings first so that a practitioner can start cleaning that part of their life up even before he would move them into kind of teaching the meditation and things like this. So these five precepts, if we go through these and you see things that you need to clean up as part of your life practice, it would be really wise to focus on these as even like a first step into the path, even though we use the Four Noble Truths as a way to help you understand the problem 
with the discontent mind and the unenlightened mind. It's really the five precepts in the moral conduct that we need to clean up and really make the most strides early on to clean this up so that we eliminate the harm that we're putting out into the world as soon as possible. So in some sense, following the five precepts is almost a precursor or is certainly helpful when following the rest of the path, such as meditation. And without following the five precepts, one would probably find difficulty meditating and doing the rest of the path. Exactly, because if we're doing all these unwholesome things in the world and we're putting out all this harm in the world, the mind is going to be shaken up. It's going to be very unstable. It's going to go to sleep worried at night. It's going to wake up in the morning worried. You're going to be walking down the street fearful because you're doing this unwholesome conduct in the world. But by you cleaning up your moral conduct and you know that you're not causing harm in the world to other people, then the mind can be at ease because you know for six months, a year, three years, five years, you haven't been causing any harm to other beings and therefore harm isn't coming back to you. And you can see that your life starts getting cleaned up, that the people around you are starting to interact with you in a different way than they did before when we might have been causing harm in the world. So yes, it would be very difficult to walk through the world and even meditate if the mind is congested with all this unwholesomeness that we're doing in the world it's going to make the mind muddled and unclear because we're causing harm in the world so the mind is muddled it's shaken up it's unsettled it's unstable because we're having to worry and be fearful about what's going to happen to us in the world thank you david no more questions for this time all right So let's look at the very first precept that the Buddha taught, and I'm going to use his words because his words are very illuminating and help us to understand what he was actually teaching. Then I'm going to go through some various details on each individual precept so that you can understand how to apply this to your life. The Buddha's words here on the first precept are abandoning the taking of life, refraining from taking life without stick or sword, diligent compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. So typically this one is translated as no killing, right? But as you see here, his words are so much more illuminating than that, right? Yes, there's this abandoning the taking of life, refraining from taking life without stick or sword, right? Without a weapon, diligent. It's like showing care. Diligent is to show care and then compassionate is having concern for the misfortune of others, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. Like we don't have to be fearful, right? But essentially you get the message of what he's talking about here is that we should have concern for the welfare of all living beings. In order to understand this precept, we need to understand what is a living being because that's what he's talking about here. So what I like to do with the Buddha's words is I like to break down each individual word each individual sentence, each individual phrase, and really investigate it with like a magnifying glass. So since this particular precept is talking about living beings, it's important to understand that we know what is a living being. Well, the way that the Buddha defines a living being in his teachings is he defines this as essentially a being that comes into the world through an egg, a sperm, and has a consciousness. He talks about what's called the five aggregates. This is something that you will learn in other classes with me if you get into the Pali Canon and English study group. 
where I share with you what's called the five aggregates. This is how the Buddha describes a living being. He describes a living being as a being that has form, that has feelings, has perceptions, has volitional formations, which are choices or decisions, and that has a consciousness. But the way I'm kind of summarizing it for you and helping you to see it a little bit more simply is if you think about a being that has an egg and a sperm and a consciousness, then this is a living being. So with that definition, you can understand that things like plants and bacteria are not a living being. While we might consider a tree to be alive, it can't make its own decisions. It can't decide, you know, I don't like the view here on this hill. I'm going to pick myself up, walk a couple hundred meters and replant myself. A tree can't do that because it doesn't have consciousness. It doesn't have a mind to make decisions about picking itself up, walking and replanting itself. So while we talk about plants in our modern language as being alive, it's not a living being in the way that the Buddha describes it. The same thing with something like bacteria. So if you're going to harvest broccoli or cauliflower, you're not killing a living being. Or if you have a bacteria that's inside the body and you take medicine like an antibacterial medicine or antiviral medicine, these are not living beings because they don't have a consciousness, right? A virus or bacteria, they're not making decisions to get up and walk and move somewhere else and things like this. So for all intensive purposes, you can look at the animal world and you can look at the human world and see these as living beings. But then we also have beings in these other realms, too, that the Buddha talked about. But primarily what he's talking about here is he's talking about animals and humans. With this understanding of living compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings, you would need to think about things that are somewhat common practice in certain parts of the world. What humanity's laws are related to killing versus this natural laws of existence, they're two completely different levels of practice. While something might be legal in humanity's laws, doesn't mean that your mind is going to be at ease if you practice that. So these things that I'm going to share with you here, a lot of them are actually legal in the society today. Things like euthanasia of a human or animal, termination of a pregnancy, suicide, assisted suicide, capital punishment, going to war, government-sponsored killings, or murder of, an, of beings. These are all intentional killings that they don't follow this particular precept. So this is why we have conflict. This is why we have challenges when we euthanize an animal, for example. If we euthanize an animal, while it's legal and it's something that's done all throughout the world, Oftentimes when people do that, they feel very guilty. They feel shame. They feel conflicted after they've euthanized a family pet, for example, or after someone has terminated a pregnancy, for example. Oftentimes there's a lot of guilt or shame associated with that. Things like suicide, assisted suicide, while somebody might ask you to help them commit suicide and you might feel that's the best thing to do, even if it's legal in your country, Afterwards, you're going to be left with a lot of discontentedness. This is that natural laws of existence where humanity's laws are operating on one level, where the natural laws of existence are on a whole nother level. Same thing with something like war. 
While a government might sponsor its citizens to go to another country and kill on the behalf of that country, they can't escape the natural laws of existence. When they come back to their country, they won't be prosecuted for murder, right? If they killed somebody in their own country, they would be prosecuted for murder. But a government choosing and giving authority for their soldiers to go to another country and kill, they won't be prosecuted on a human level. But at this level of the natural laws of existence, they can escape the consequences of their decisions. If you're out there killing as a soldier, for example, then you're likely to be killed yourself. That's why. That's the consequences of your decisions. That when we put out harm in the world, that harm is going to come to us. This is also why soldiers oftentimes are harmed in terms of having amputations or mental disorders when they come back from war, or they even commit suicide when they come back from war. This is all the consequences of their decisions to go out in the world and kill. Even though their government gave them the authority to do that, they can't escape this natural laws of existence. And this is why oftentimes soldiers are very conflicted about the things that they've done when they've gone out to war. Same thing with something like capital punishment. While Some people feel that a murderer or someone who has murdered should be killed by the government through a court system. And while that goes on in our world today, this is humanity's laws. But this natural laws of existence, when a government is seeing that, okay, there's this being in our society that we don't agree with their actions, we're going to put them through our court system and now we're going to kill them or murder them as part of their punishment for what they did in society because we disagree with their actions and what they've done. Well, when the population of people see that the government is doing this, then this teaches the population of people that when you disagree with somebody in their actions, then you kill them. So if you look at places that have capital punishment in the world, the various governments around the world, you will see that in that population of people, there tends to be a lot of murder. And this is the reason why. is because on one side, the government's saying, don't kill anybody and you shouldn't be murdering each other out there in the population. But yet we're going to murder people over here when they do things that we don't like and that we don't agree with. We're going to put them to death in capital punishment. So this is where humanity's laws are never perfect because humans are involved and we make errors in the way that we set up our laws and humanity. But this natural laws of existence, it's a perfect natural law that it functions on its own. And this is why we see places that have capital punishment and regularly kill through capital punishment. You'll see that those countries and those societies, those populations of people tend to have a lot of murder in society because the population is looking at the government and the leaders in the government about what they're doing. And when they see that this is happening, this is what motivates them to say, okay, well, we disagree with this person's behavior, so we should perhaps kill them. And this is where we see murders on the streets. So I could go through each individual one of these and help you see how by practicing these and actually doing these things, it's causing harm in the world and therefore harm continues to come to us. We're not going to experience a world where there's no murders and no killing until individual by individual we observe 
and see the wisdom that by us continuing to kill and us continuing to have intentional killing, that it's going to continue to precipitate more and more killing. Essentially, what this precept is doing, if you choose to practice it, is it's training your mind to eliminate any kind of anger, hatred, and ill will. This is a primary aspect of this path to enlightenment that we're going to talk about next week. It's one of the three poisons or one of the three unwholesome roots is what we call it. By having anger, hatred, and ill will and putting that out into the world, not just through killing, but through other things as well, like other intentions or our speech or other things that we do, then that hatred, that anger, that ill will is going to come back to us. So in order to kill another being, you would need to have a certain amount of hate in the mind. You'd have to have a certain amount of anger or ill will. So what you'll observe by people who are practicing the Buddhist teachings very closely is even when a mosquito lands on you or lands on your clothes or lands on your arm, we don't actually kill the mosquito and swat it. We actually just kind of blow it and kind of blow it off of our arm or we'll take our hand and kind of swipe it. Or if you have an insect in your home, rather than kill that being, because there has to be a certain amount of anger, hatred, and ill will to do that. Instead, maybe you take some paper or you take a tissue or something and you relocate it out of your house. And this will help you to practice this precept and you can develop this compassion, this interest, and this concern for the welfare of all living beings. And when you can have this level of compassion with the spider that's in the corner of your house, or a little mosquito that lands on you and you can have this compassion to just swipe it off of you, then it's much easier to have compassion for your children or your life partner or your coworkers and things like this. So what you're doing by practicing this precept is you're cultivating this loving kindness and this compassion in the mind for all living beings so that you live in a way that doesn't cause harm to others. Some other things that I covered in this particular precept in the book are things like a DNR or what's called a do not resuscitate. This is essentially where somebody is alive. They sign a document that says, if I die, then don't use medical intervention to bring me back to life. This isn't an intentional killing. This is actually someone who's has chosen while they were alive that should they die, don't bring me back to life because sometimes People feel like they're just comfortable with natural death and they're completely fine with that. They don't need all these modern medicines to bring them back and extend their life. They're completely comfortable with not allowing those things to happen and just allowing natural death to occur. So if somebody decides to sign a DNR or do not resuscitate, this isn't them choosing to intentionally kill themselves. They've already died. They're just choosing to not allow people to bring them back to life with all this modern medicine. You might also think about like defense and protection. What would you do if you were practicing this precept and someone barged into your house at 3 a.m. in the morning and had a gun or a knife? You know, what do you do? Do you just let them kill you and your family? You know, how do you practice this precept? Well, I talk in this chapter about how it's okay to defend the physical body and protect the physical body. And even if you were in a home and someone was breaking in at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning to protect your family as well, this is something that you can do. 
And the best thing to do, if possible, is just get away from the situation. Is if somebody was breaking in my back door, I might actually run out the front door and you know let them have whatever is in the house because in that situation I would be safe, right? But if that wasn't possible and I needed to defend this physical body, then that's something that you can do. But what you would like to do is cause the least amount of harm as possible. The more harm you inflict on this being, the more likely it is that you're going to have challenges afterwards. But, you know, if you needed to take somebody's life in that situation, notice that the Buddha teaching here isn't preserve all life at all cost. That's not what this precept says. It doesn't say preserve all life at all cost. It says live compassionate for the welfare of all living beings. Well, if somebody's breaking into your house at two or three in the morning, they're not delivering flowers and chocolate. They're coming to do harm. And if they end up getting harmed in the process, that's the result of their decisions. They chose to come in and attempt to inflict harm on a family, for example. And if harm comes back to them as a result of their decisions, then that's their gamma. That's the results of their decisions. You didn't go out and actively seek out causing harm to this person. You're just living in your home, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. You're not causing harm to anybody. But when harm came to you in that situation, then if you need to defend yourself, then you defend yourself in whatever way that you feel is appropriate. But what you'll find is the least amount of harm that you are able to deliver, the better off for you and everyone involved. And then the last one here on this precept is I talk about consuming animal products. If we are going to live compassionately and trembling for the welfare of all living beings, we wouldn't be able to do that if we were actually eating other beings. It would be very difficult to make the case that we have concern for the misfortune of others or we're practicing loving kindness for all beings if we're actually eating a living being. And today, eating living beings causes an enormous amount of harm, of course, to the living beings themselves, but it also causes harm to us as well. There's lots of research that shows that by eating meat, we are also ingesting drugs, toxins, and hormones that were injected into these animals as part of their growth process. And then by eating that, it actually causes harm to our own body through sickness and illnesses. So if you're looking to practice this precept closely, you might consider moving to a plant-based food supply where you're not eating animals in order to sustain your life. When or if you choose to do that is your choice, but you'll notice that with all of these teachings that you don't have to believe what I'm saying, that by you learning and reflecting and practicing, you'll see the results for yourself. That when you move away from meat, you'll see that the body becomes more healthy, the mind becomes more healthy, you'll have more energy, your hair, your eyes, your skin will brighten up. There's gonna be all these benefits that you see within about a three to six month period of moving away from meat. They've even shown that wild fish, for example, in places like America that have very clean water and are known to have very clean water, they've taken wild fish out of these streams and they've tested the meat and they found things like cocaine and antidepressants and other drugs that are in the flesh of the animal. Because now we've had these drugs 
in our environment for so long, people have been flushing them down the toilet. Things like cocaine and antidepressants and things like this, and it's polluted our water table. So now in place that has freely running fresh streams, we're seeing fish that have pollutants like drugs, toxins, and hormones, even in wild fish. And when someone kills that on our behalf, even though they're doing the killing, we are still eating that meat and it affects us through bodily sickness. It's the same thing as if somebody stole a car and you didn't steal the car, but you just are driving the car. If the police pull you over that you're driving a stolen car, you're the one that's going to go to jail. It's the same thing that even though someone else has done the killing on your behalf, you can't escape the consequences of your decisions of eating that meat that it's going to cause more bodily sickness because of the ingesting of this flesh. You're going to be experiencing the drugs, toxins, and hormones as well. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have on this particular precept. I wanted to ask a bit about the role of intention. For instance, if I go to the park, then I know going into that, that I'm more than likely going to probably kill an insect at some point along the way. And I was just wondering how that fits along with the five precepts in this first precept. Yeah, intention is really important because as we walk down the street, we're going to kill insects, right? Because they're under our shoes. We didn't know they were there. It wasn't our intention to kill those beings. And this is where you can really understand how this precept is guided to eliminate anger, hatred, and ill will. Because when you're walking down the street, you don't have anger, hatred, and ill will for the ants or the other insects that are under your feet at the park or down the street as you're walking on the sidewalk. You are not intentionally walking in a way to kill those beings. So if you have intention to kill the being, of course, there's anger, hatred, and ill will there. And that's being maintained in the mind through the intentional killing. But if there is no intentional killing, you didn't do it intentionally. You are living compassionately for the welfare of living beings and working to ensure that you don't cause harm. And always come back to this precept is it doesn't say preserve all life at all costs because that would be impossible. There's actually a tradition in the world called Jainism where they actually will take a broom and they will sweep in front of them as they're walking to ensure that they don't kill any other living beings. This is not the middle way in my view, because the, remember the Buddha taught the middle way, where if we're over here sweeping in front of us and we're like so obsessed with not impacting any other beings and we sweep in front of us to make sure we're not stepping on an insect before we walk, this would make life extremely challenging to roam about the world. But also if we haphazardly walked around stomping and stepping on any other thing that we see, then that's not really living compassionately for the welfare of living beings either. So we need to find this middle way where we walk down the street and we know that, okay, there's most likely going to be some insect that ends up under my foot at some point, but that's not my intention. That's not what I'm looking to have happen, but I'm sure it probably will happen. So as long as you're not intentionally killing the living being through your decision making, then you're living for the compassion and welfare of living beings. For example, if you have like an infestation of insects in your home, 
what I would suggest is see if there's any natural ways to get rid of these insects. There's things like here in Thailand, they will use something called kaffir lime. It's like a really pugnant lime that has a really strong smell. They will sometimes grade this and put it around their house as a way to kind of get rid of any insects around their house and kind of prevent them from coming in. And it's a herb, so it doesn't cause harm. It's not a pesticide. But there are some rare situations where you get such an infestation to your house and they start chewing and eating wood or eating concrete and things like this that it would destroy your home if you didn't hire somebody to potentially come eradicate this insect infestation from your home. So if you just let the insects eat your home and eat it away, that wouldn't be loving kindness and compassion to your life partner, your children, or your own well-being if you allow your house to crumble around you. But also, if you just went out and tried to kill these beings right away without doing a little bit of research and seeing if there's some natural way to eradicate it, that wouldn't necessarily be living with compassion for those living beings either. So by finding this middle way where maybe you've exhausted your research and there is no way to get rid of these termites other than to bring in a company in order to eradicate them. And in this situation, the termites are causing harm. And therefore, because they're causing harm, then harm is coming to them and that they're going to end up getting eradicated from the home. This is the cause and effect, this natural law of gamma. And this is their gamma of being reborn into the animal world that they are a termite, they're eating wood, they're causing harm. Therefore, people are going to be interested in killing them because of the harm that they're causing. So always come back to, yes, intention, and be sure that you're looking to live compassionately for the welfare of living beings, but also always come back to this precept is not preserve all life at all costs. That would be impossible to accomplish, and it wouldn't be the middle way. Thank you, David. That's very helpful clarification. We have a question from Denise. What about when an animal is suffering from a terminal illness? Is it not causing more harm to let the animal keep living? So this is a common question that I get because nowadays we live very close with animals and a lot of people have grown very close to pets. They're almost like family members. But you, you need to understand this cycle of rebirth in order to understand the answer to this question. So animals in the animal world, they can't attain enlightenment from that realm. They're going to have to be reborn. And all of us have been previous animals, countless animals in the past, and we've now made it into the human world. But these pets that we have, they're going to need to be reborn. And the goal would be is that from that animal birth that they get an improved rebirth in their next life, whether they get a higher being in the animal realm or they become a human in their next life. And the best chance for them to get a higher level rebirth is for them to experience all their gamma in one particular existence. So oftentimes when an animal gets sick or injured, the owners are interested or they've been guided by doctors to euthanize this animal. And it's been labeled a compassionate killing. But there's no way to compassionately kill another being. This would be an intentional killing. If you really truly have deep feelings for this animal, while it's a struggle for you to observe that they're ill or it's a struggle for you to observe that they're sick, 
it's actually better for the animal to let them live out that life because then on their next rebirth, they're going to have a better chance of getting to the human realm and then actually attaining enlightenment. Because the real problem that that being is having is the cycle of rebirth. Killing them in that life isn't going to actually solve their real problem, which is getting out of the cycle of rebirth. If you understand the real problem is the cycle of rebirth, then you would like to let them live out as much of their gamma as possible so they can get to an improved rebirth and have a better chance of escaping this whole cycle of rebirth so they don't have to keep experiencing this sickness, aging, and death, this constant rebirth over and over and over again. Oftentimes, euthanizing an animal is actually the owner trying to end their own suffering because the owner has this attachment to the pet and their suffering to observe their animal suffer. And because of their attachment to the pet, they think if they kill this being, it's going to make them feel better and they can get over it quicker. Well, this actually is going to leave the person typically with guilt or shame after they do the euthanasia. And again, it's going to be harmful to the animal because they're not going to be able to live out their full natural life and get an improved rebirth in their next life. So what I would suggest is that if somebody has an animal is to let them live out their full natural life. And I've had a few students that have asked me about this question before where they were getting advice from doctors to euthanize. And I just shared with them the Buddhist teachings and said, you know, it's your choice, whatever you choose to do. While the veterinarian was suggesting to put them to sleep right away, in one particular case that I know of, this particular student chose to not euthanize. And that animal actually ended up living for almost another year. So had they followed the doctor's advice because it looked like the animal had a stroke and they were having trouble walking and trouble eating, what ended up happening is they didn't euthanize. The animal regained its health and lived for a whole nother year. And it had a very good another year. It took them a, a few weeks or a few months to regain their health, but ultimately they got back to health. So you've got to think about all these living beings, whether it's an animal or a human, you know, do we euthanize our grandmother when she gets cancer or when she gets a broken leg, for example? But some people with a dog or a horse, you know, if they get a broken leg, they'll kill it. They'll euthanize it. And in my view, based on living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings, that compassion and that welfare is to help these beings get out of the cycle of rebirth. And the best way we can do that is let them live out their full natural life and not have an intentional killing. Thank you, David. That's all the questions we have at this moment. Okay. Let's go to the second precept, which is using the Buddha's words. The way that he spoke this is abandoning the taking of what is not given, living purely, accepting what is given, awaiting what is given without stealing. Okay, there's multiple pieces to this precept. This is typically translated as no stealing, but there's so much more here that you need to understand as part of this precept. So abandoning the taking of what is not given, that obviously is, you know, we shouldn't steal. If we go around and we take from other people things that they've acquired, this is going to cause harm to them because they had to work. They had to build up their resources and they obviously purchased those things in order to help them in life. 
So if we have craving desire attachment and we steal from somebody something, then that's going to harm that person and harm is going to come to us. So what this precept is designed for mostly is to eliminate craving desire attachment where you work and you apply effort to earn the things that you need in order to sustain your life and that we don't steal from others. Because when we take something from someone else, it's gonna hurt them. If we stole somebody's car, they would have trouble getting to work, they would have trouble going to the doctor or to the hospital, they would have trouble taking their children to school, for example, they would have trouble going shopping to get food and clothing and things that they need to sustain their life. So by us causing that harm, harm is going to come to us. And we know that. And this is a pretty straightforward one. You know, that's why in humanity, our human laws say, okay, if you steal, you're going to go to jail, essentially. Right. So this natural law of gamma on this particular aspect and human laws, they match. They're in sync. But as we go through here, you'll see there's some other intricacies that you would like to kind of make sure that you practice as part of this precept to practice it closer and closer. So say you were in a school, for example, and your teacher had a stapler on their desk and you came in and you were getting ready to turn in a report to your teacher and your teacher was off to the bathroom and you grabbed the stapler off their desk and you just stapled your paper and then your teacher walked in and saw you using their stapler that person might be attached to their stapler. And now when you use it, they're going to become discontent that you're using something that was on their desk. So what the Buddha is doing here is helping to protect you from any discontentedness from other people so that you don't assume that you can use something or that you can take something when it's on someone's desk, for example. Whereas if you're very friendly with this teacher, you've known this teacher for a long time, you might think that it's appropriate just to go ahead and grab the stapler and use it. But it might actually cause harm when that person walks in if they're attached to the things on their desk and you've taken something off of their desk, it can be viewed in the mind of that person as stealing. But in your mind, you don't view it as stealing. It's just borrowing a stapler, for example. But if you're wise and you practice this really, really closely, you wouldn't use that stapler without asking the teacher first. That's essentially what you would do in order to practice this is you would ask the teacher if you could borrow their stapler. And if they said yes, you'd use it. And if they said no, then you'd have to find some other way. But that's the level of detail that you would like to practice is that you're not taking anything from anybody in any situation but instead you ensure that the things that you're using, that they belong to you or that you've gotten permission to use them, for example. The other part of this precept is accepting what is given. So sometimes in life, when we are going about our life, we might ask people for things and we might ask them to do things for us, which is kind of part of getting along in a household life. But there's sometimes that we ask for things that we don't truly really need. We just want something. We have a certain craving or desire, right? So let's just say you were in a relationship and your partner was going on a business travel and you were like, oh, honey, uh, when you come back from Florida, be sure to bring me some oranges. Oranges are really tasty in Florida. Bring me some oranges back. 
This is us now asking and requesting somebody to bring something back for us. And it forms this expectation that they should bring us something. But then this also kind of burdens that other person with having to go around and find that for us and then go through all the trouble of bringing it back. And what the Buddha is saying is that we shouldn't put these expectations on people to give us things, that we should just accept what is given, just patiently awaiting whatever is given. So this is why you don't see Buddhist teachers and monks and things like this, ordained practitioners, going around asking for things, asking for donations, asking for their students to come help them. But if a student makes an offering or if a student asks, you know, teacher, is there anything I can help you with? Then we will accept what is given. We don't go around and ask for things because this is putting expectations on others that they may not be able to fulfill. So it wouldn't be wise for us in all of our relationships that we have, not just with Buddhist teachers, but with our life partners, our children, our coworkers, our friends, to constantly be asking other people to do things for us. Instead, we should just accept what is given. Whatever people choose to give us, then we accept that. And also, as part of this Buddhist practice, there's this aspect of generosity, that we practice generosity as a way of eliminating craving, desire, attachment. You'll hear about this when we talk about chapter 10, when we talk about what is merit. When we practice generosity, it helps us to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. So amongst practitioners that are practicing generosity, it's very common for people to make offerings to you, not just as a Buddhist teacher, but living in your home here in a Thai village, it's common for people to come by and give us a bunch of bananas or give us some fresh herbs or they made some food, they have some extra food and they're gonna give us some of that food or things like this. And if you're ever offered something and somebody offers to give you something, in some cultures, we block it and we tell people, no, I don't want that or no, I'm not interested in that. But what the Buddha is teaching you is to accept what is given, that you should always accept from people when they make offerings. That if somebody offers you some soup, you just accept it. Or if somebody offers you bananas and you don't like bananas and you haven't eaten a banana your entire life, the Buddha is teaching you to just accept what is given. The reason why is that this person is practicing generosity. They're obviously interested in making you an offering and giving you something that we should accept it. Whereas if we block that offering, then this person can feel painful feelings. And then they're not going to be likely to be interested to be close and friendly with you because when they made that offering to you and you blocked them, they're going to end up experiencing painful feelings. And if they're not practicing this path closely, they're going to attribute those painful feelings to you. So if you're interested in maintaining healthy relationships with friends and family and coworkers, if somebody makes an offering to you, even if it's something that you would never ever wear, you would never use, you would never eat, you just accept it. And then you practice generosity and you choose to give it to somebody else. In some cultures, they think that if you accept a gift, you've got to hold on to that permanently. But that's not the truth. The truth is, is that there's this natural 
laws, there's this universal truth of impermanence that if someone gives you a sweater that you just know that you would never wear this sweater and you got it as a gift or somebody offered it to you, just accept it, thank them, share with them that you appreciate their generosity. And then at whatever time you feel appropriate, then you can hand it off to somebody else and make an offering, whether it's to a friend or a family or you give it to a place like Salvation Army or some donation site or some homeless person that could use it. That's completely fine because in an environment where everyone's practicing generosity and they're practicing these teachings closely, there shouldn't be the expectation from the person who's giving you the gift that you're going to absolutely use it. Because if someone's practicing pure generosity, they shouldn't have any expectations whatsoever. So if someone's giving you a sweater and they're expecting, wanting, craving for you to wear that sweater, and then you don't wear that sweater, if they get painful feelings in that situation, they've actually caused that themselves. So by you accepting that sweater and then giving it to someone else, even if they know that you've given it to somebody else, there's no harm that you've given it to somebody else. You haven't harmed that person. They've harmed themselves in that situation because you've accepted the gift and you've just chosen to give it to somebody else. But if they end up getting painful feelings as a result of knowing that you gave it to someone else, then that means that their gift wasn't fully purified. Their gift had conditions. Their gift had expectations. Their gift had certain strings attached that they were giving you this gift with the expectation that you were going to wear it. And this isn't a purified gift the way that the Buddha talks about it. He says that this gift wasn't given with the right intention. So therefore, you can accept every gift that's ever given to you. And this is going to keep you open to all beings that as people make offerings to you, they'll feel comfortable because they've given you offerings. Where if you shut people down and you don't accept things that they offer to you, then you're going to find that they're not going to be interested in making offerings to you or practicing generosity with you. So it's very common in cultures like in Buddhist cultures that you accept all gifts and then it's very common that you give things to other people if that's not something that you're going to actually use. So even this week, we had a neighbor came by and gave us bananas. And there's many different types of bananas here in Thailand. And we already had bananas at our house. So rather than keep them here and have them go bad, we ended up giving them to one of our family members. And that particular person who gave us the bananas, we didn't have to tell them that we were going to do that. But that person practiced generosity to give us the bananas. And then we practiced generosity by giving it to our family. And I don't know what our family members are going to do. Maybe they're going to give it to their neighbors. But in the meantime, these bananas will eventually find a home. And everybody's been practicing generosity along the way. So this is really important for your practice that you don't just think about this precept as no stealing. But also, be sure if you use something of somebody else's that you get permission, be sure that you don't put your expectations that you should get something from other people. You should await what is given. And you should also accept what is given when somebody makes an offering to you. What questions do you guys have on this precept? I just wanted to say that's very timely advice with the holiday season coming up about regifting. I think that's something that a lot of us are going to come in contact with over the next couple months. 
Indeed. You know, I remember growing up as a kid, you know, we would get gifts from different people and, you know, we would just accept a gift and it would sit in our closet for five years, 10 years, 15 years, still in the original box because nobody was interested in wearing those clothes or using that blanket or whatever it was. And it just withered away and it got wasted where our minds were conditioned to think that we're supposed to hold on to this gift just because somebody gave it to us. We're supposed to hold on to it. But that's craving desire attachment. Whereas if you practice what the Buddha teaches, which is eliminating craving desire attachment, which is what this precept is designed to train your mind for, is that you don't hold on to things. Is that when someone gives you a Christmas gift or a holiday gift, and if you use it and you can use it, great. And if you can't, you just hand it off to the next person who can use it. And there's no harm in that. You haven't caused any harm by practicing generosity and handing that off to someone else. I have another question that is a little bit related to with the holidays coming up. If, if someone wants to say over dinner, give us something like a food prepared with, with meat, would we accept that? Or is that a place where we would potentially draw the line on accepting? See, that's where if you accepted that, it would be in conflict with the first precept. So you have to have some discernment. All the Buddhist teachings are balanced on discernment, which is wise decision making. So like, for example, if somebody would have offered the Buddha a beer during his lifetime, he wouldn't have accepted the beer and drank the beer because he knows that's an intoxicant and it would pollute his mind. So there's discernment here that if somebody's offering you cocaine, for example, you're not going to accept that because it's in conflict with the other parts of the teachings. So in that situation, if somebody offered me meat, then I wouldn't accept it, but I would have a very polite, warm and kind way of uh, talking through that so that people understand that, you know, I don't eat meat, but I would say that in a very warm and friendly way prefacing it with a whole lot of thank you and appreciation for the offer of the meat. I call this the art of the friendly no. And some of the students are like, you need to write that book, the art of the friendly no. It sounds like an actual book. So you have to have this way about you of how to say no in certain situations. And it's almost like an art of how to say no in a friendly way. And usually I preface any kind of no with gratitude and appreciation. And I don't actually use the word no when I need to let somebody know that I'm not going to accept a particular offering. I always find a, a way of saying no without saying no. That's essentially the subtitle of the book, The Art of the Friendly No, How to Say No Without Saying No. That's the subtitle. <laughs> It seems that in some sense, the second precept is, especially when we look at accepting what is given, it's about creating an environment in the world of generosity. Would you say that that's a lot of what it's about? Exactly. Because if we shut down every time somebody makes an offering to us just because we have a certain preference of something, then yeah, we shut down this generosity. And I grew up with my grandparents and my grandparents were born in the 1920s. And I spent, of course, time with my mom and my family as well, but I spent a lot of time around older people. And I heard about an America where you could walk down the street in inner cities and other places in the world at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 
as a single person and have no problems whatsoever. I heard about an America where my grandparents grew up and they didn't even have to lock their front door. I heard about an America where people would move into the neighborhood and all the neighbors would get together and make food and make these offerings to the neighbors and make sure that they shared food. I heard about an America where when people would make food and it was very commonplace to share that food with your neighbor. And I could go on and on and on about all these amazing things that I heard that took place during the generation of my grandparents. But all of that has really changed in a lot of cultures. We've become very shut in. You know, with all this news and the proliferation of information and hearing about all these murders and stealing and rapes and sexual abuse and mass shootings and all these things, people have become very shut in and almost afraid to talk to people and interact with people that you've never met before. Well, if we go to this environment where we're looking to have this heaven on earth where people are practicing in a way that's very open and loving, kind and compassionate to all beings. Well, when someone offers you something, if your neighbor spent a half a day making a dish and they show up and they're like, hey, I made you this dish and you were like, no, I don't eat that. Sorry. Whoa. Can you imagine like their heart's going to sink because they took all this time and effort to go shopping and prepare this food and bring it over to your house with a smile. And if we kind of give them the hand and we're like, nope, I don't want that. Wow. Like, do you think they're ever going to go through that effort to make us food and show kindness to us again? So if we accept what is given and we, okay, we accept that it's not something that we eat necessarily, but we can then give it to somebody else. Then that can be a way that we maintain the relationship and we keep an open door to all beings in our life and that we are able to cultivate this loving and kind relationship with each other. I wanted to share that Chrissy said that she would have an interest in the book you were mentioning, so that may be a nice idea. I think she might be the one that recommended me to write the book, her and a few other people. (laughs) (laughs) We have a question from Adrienne on Facebook. How about when this is in reverse, when people take things that are considered mine without asking, I usually don't say or do anything because of the concept of attachment. And I'm of the mindset that if they needed it that badly, let them have it. Their comma is not mine. Yet by not saying anything, I wonder if I'm giving permission to take advantage of me. I try to set appropriate boundaries that are respectful, compassionate, but it doesn't always work. What is the middle way? Yeah, what I do is I, for example, I live here in this house. We have three rooms. My wife is in one, my son's in one, and I'm in one. And every once in a while, my son used to come into my room and he would use my charger for the computer because we have a similar computer. Or he would take something else in my room. Well, I really don't care. I really don't care that my son uses anything in my entire room. I'm interested in teaching him this precept and ensure that he doesn't just walk on into his teacher's office and take the teacher's stapler or he doesn't just walk into his friend's house and take a toy and if he gets used to taking things out of my room then he's going to be used to doing that and maybe do that with his teacher or his friends or something so when i observe that my son has done that in the past i will just sit him down and i'll talk to him and i'll say you came into dad's room and you borrowed the charger right he's like yeah i did 
And I just talk with them and let him know that this isn't wise for him to come into people's rooms and just take things without asking. I let him know that I'm more than pleased to allow him to use anything that he would like in my room, but I would just like him to ask first. So even though I don't care that he uses anything in the room, I'm not attached to anything in this room, I'm still sharing the wisdom with him of the way that he needs to conduct himself in the world because if he gets used to interacting with me in one way and he just can freely come into my room and take anything, then he's going to start interacting that way with other people too. So the middle way here is that you can sit down and teach people. You can talk to people, but don't be expecting them to get it in the first talk, especially like my son. I think we started talking about this when he was maybe seven or eight years old. He's nine years old now, and we've had to have that same talk multiple times before it really sunk in and he's now practicing that he will ask before he actually comes into the room and actually take something so you don't have to just let people take things from you that wouldn't be a wise choice especially if it's children that you're trying to guide in order to gain this wisdom and interact in the world in a certain way but also if you choose to talk to somebody about these things you need to do it calmly you need to do it polite, kind, friendly, and respectfully. And you shouldn't have the expectation that one conversation, and they're going to ultimately be practicing it right away after that one conversation, is probably going to take multiple calm conversations where you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. And that would be the middle way that you teach people how to interact in the world in a better way around you, but at the same time, you don't allow your mind to get discontent just because somebody came in and took something off your desk. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions for now. All right. Let's look at number three, which tends to be one that has more involved conversation because all of us are kind of used to this particular precept being discussed as no sexual misconduct. Well, this is such a rudimentary translation and what is sexual misconduct? Who determines what is sexual misconduct? Well, the Buddha gives us a teaching in the third precept that is very illuminating. And if you learn his words and what he's sharing, he's explaining it in detail. And you can see exactly what is sexual misconduct and what isn't sexual misconduct. So there's no confusion in your mind whatsoever. We're going to talk next week about the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots of craving, anger, and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. One of the ways we talk about this one is also confusion. The Buddhist teachings are giving you the clarity of what these natural laws of existence are so that the mind isn't confused about how to practice in the world. So here in the third precept, we're getting very clear guidance of what sexual misconduct is so that we don't cause harm through our sexual interactions with other beings. And here's his words. He says, abandoning unchastity. Now, chastity is when you're kind of preserving yourself and you're not having sex with multiple people. So unchastity would be someone who's just having sex with anybody for pretty much any reason. So the Buddha is saying, abandon that, right? So essentially what he's saying is practice chastity. Ensure that you're having good, wholesome, committed, loyal relationships with somebody before you choose to have sex with them. And this will ensure that your 
protecting your own mind and you're also protecting the individual too because if you have sex with lots of people in succession then that's where we can end up getting sexual diseases and that's the harm that ends up coming to us or we feel very lost or we feel very empty inside when we have sex with lots of people because we haven't had a commitment we haven't had a real bonding experience of being able to share this sexual experience with somebody we're just kind of having sex with anybody for any reason so this is why we have these harms that come to us in terms of harm to our own mind with kind of guilt or shame or fear or also these sexually transmitted diseases that come to us if we end up having sex with lots of different people. That's the harm that we experience as a result of us not practicing this precept, for example. So abandoning unchastity, essentially having loyal, committed relationships. Abandoning sexual relations with women or men who are protected by their mother, father, mother, and father brother, sister, or relatives who are protected by their dhamma or the teachings, who have a husband, wife, or partner whose violation entails a penalty or even with one who has been garlanded by a man, woman, or partner as a sign of engagement. Okay, so I took this precept and I bulleted it out and kind of showed you exactly what the Buddha is talking about here. Well, one aspect of what he's sharing here is that we shouldn't have sex with minors. That's what he's saying when he says abandoning sexual relations with a woman or man who is protected by their mother, father, mother and father, brother, sister or relatives. Because if somebody's staying at home, they're 12 years old, they're 14 years old, they're 16 years old, they're still being guided by their parents and Sexual contact is very intimate, it's very close, it can be very impactful to the mind. And if we end up having sex with minors, it's going to cause harm to that minor, it's going to cause harm to the family because the family's trying to guide this child. And this is why it's illegal in humanity's laws. But it's also part of the natural laws of existence that it's going to cause harm. And that's why humanity has decided that we shouldn't be doing this and has made laws around this. But at one time and in certain places in the world, it's not illegal to have sex with a 12 year old child. But even though humanity's laws in certain parts of the world say that you're legally able to have sex with a 12 year old child, these natural laws of existence by doing that, it's going to cause harm to that child and to their family. And the Buddha says that we would be wise not to do this. Any kind of sex without consent, that is, you know, someone who the Buddha talks about it, who entails a penalty, whose violation entails a penalty. This is like rape or somebody who we don't have consent to have sex with. If we do that, it's also like stealing, but it's also sexual misconduct because we've forcibly taken sexual contact from somebody that's going to cause harm to that being so therefore harm is going to come to us sex with multiple partners this is unchastity the way that the buddha is teaching here is that if we're going to have sex it should be with one partner at a time 
and we should ensure that we have a well-developed relationship with that person before we decide to have this close, intimate contact. Because once there's this close, intimate contact, that's an opportunity for the mind to become highly attached to each other. And you would like to make sure that there's a well-developed relationship and it's only with one person in a loyal, committed, faithful relationship. If there's a certain being that is living at home with their relatives. So like here in Thailand, it's common that when you become 18, 20, 25, 30 years old, you might meet a partner and then you get married and you move into the parents' house together. And then you save your money and then eventually you buy a house for you and your partner somewhere else. So for maybe five years, you might be living at home as a married couple with your mom and dad. In this situation, the parents have accepted the relationship. This isn't sexual misconduct if you choose to have sex because the parents have accepted the relationship. They know that you're married. They know that you're living together as husband and wife. Maybe you may not have even had a ceremony, but they've accepted the relationship that two people living together in the home of a parent, those parents would have had to accept you into their home. And this wouldn't be considered sexual misconduct because the parents have accepted you into their home and they know that that's part of the relationship. If somebody has chosen to be celibate, for example, as part of this path to enlightenment, in order to go to the third or fourth stage of enlightenment, somebody would choose to eliminate sexual contact from their practice. If someone's chosen to do that and then someone else was trying to lure them away from that, and entice them into having sex, this is going to cause harm to that person and harm is going to come to you. So if you know of somebody who's made a commitment not to have sex any longer and they're practicing celibacy, you shouldn't be interested or even attempt to have a sexual relationship with that person because they're practicing celibacy and it would cause harm to them and therefore it would cause harm to you. If you're already in a committed relationship, you shouldn't have sex outside of that relationship. Or if somebody else is in a committed relationship and you're not in a committed relationship, you shouldn't have sex with that person because they're already in a committed relationship. It would cause harm to that person and their existing partner, whether you were single or you had another partner, by having sex with that person is going to cause harm to you and that person. There's people that have been murdered over this kind of thing. That's the harm that's going to come to somebody who chooses to have sex with someone who's already got a partner. People have been beaten up. People have lost their jobs. People have had their cars, windshields broken, their tires slashed, even entire families. You know, if some person is already in a relationship and then they have a sexual encounter with somebody who's already in another relationship, that other partner could come kill you and your entire family. And these things happen in the world. This is the harms that happen because of the attachment, because of the craving desire attachment here. And it would be wise for us to ensure that we're only having sex when we're in a committed relationship and make sure that the other person doesn't have any other partners as well. It would be unwise to have sex with someone who's being human trafficked. If somebody is a sex worker, they could be doing that on their own choice 
or they could be human trafficked, for example. In both situations, it's going to cause harm. Someone who's human trafficked, if we end up choosing to have sex with that person, we're keeping them in that life of servitude and it's causing that person harm and it's going to cause you harm too. Again, sexually transmitted diseases. A lot of times it's illegal for human trafficked people to have sex. You can get arrested. You can go to jail. You can lose your reputation if people find out that you're doing these things. Lots of harms that can come to us if we're having sex with people who are human trafficked. Along these same lines with the third precept is paid sexual services, things like prostitution. If you're hiring a male or a female to have sex, while that does go on in many parts of the world, we experience harm because of this. We experience harm, like again, through sexually transmitted diseases. We can get very addicted to this and we can lose our wealth. We can have certain guilt or shame as a result of this. You can even end up getting beat up and murdered in these situations too. People who are selling their services for sex, they're not always necessarily the most astounding citizens in the world. You could enter into a hotel room or you could enter into a brothel that is paid sexual services and have a gun to your head, have a knife to your throat. You can get robbed. You can get all kinds of problems as a result of this. And that is because of the harm that we're causing, that harm comes back to us. Just as I talk about things that are harms, I like to talk about things to help you see more clearly about what the Buddha was teaching, not just about this precept, but about some of the wider teachings that he has as well. Notice that when the Buddha talks about sexual misconduct, he doesn't talk about same gender partners or same sex partners. And the reason why is because that's not sexual misconduct. The Buddha was aware of people who preferred same gender relationships. He actually talks about it in his teachings. He talks about men who aren't attracted to men and he talks about women who aren't attracted to women. So he was aware of people who preferred same gender relationships. This was going on during the lifetime of the Buddha as well. If you understand the universal truth of impermanence, then you understand that it's not possible for every man to be interested in having sex with a female. And it's not possible for every female to be interested in having sex with a male. That would be permanence. It doesn't exist in this world. So there's going to be females who prefer relationships with other females. And there's going to be males who prefer relationships with other males. That's been happening since the beginning of time. It's happening now and it will continue to happen long into the future. But even though the Buddha was aware of that, he didn't put it in this precept because it's completely normal and it completely reflects his teachings on the universal truth of impermanence. And there's no harm in people coming together two consenting, loyal, committed adults who choose to have a sexual relationship with each other. That's why it's not in here as a sexual misconduct. I also talk in this chapter about transgender individuals. This is also completely normal. If you understand that the physical body and the mind are two completely separate things and that we've been multiple countless beings in the past, We've been lizards and snakes and tigers and lions and bears and all different kinds of species and all different realms that we were different genders at different times. 
in a particular being being born into a male body that has male sexual organs, but the mind feels and identifies more as a female, that is completely normal if you understand the cycle of rebirth and you understand the universal truth of impermanence, that not every single person who is in a male body is going to identify with the male sexual organs that they have. That would be permanence. And we understand the universal truth of impermanence. We also understand the cycle of rebirth, that we've been multiple genders at different times in our life. So whether it's a male body or a female body, there's going to be female bodies that the mind doesn't identify with the female organs. Or there can be a male body that the mind doesn't identify with the male organs. This is completely normal. That's the reason why the Buddha didn't call this out and talk about this as part of this precept because it's completely normal and it's in line with his teachings on the universal truth of impermanence and the cycle of rebirth. Some places in some traditions they teach that masturbation is unwholesome and that it's harmful and that it shouldn't be done. Well, in order to get to enlightenment in that third and fourth stage of enlightenment, as you have heard me share, a person would need to eliminate all sexual contact, including masturbation, because that's part of the craving desire attachment in the mind. But when or if somebody is interested to do that is a personal choice, when or if they choose to actually do that. But remember that there's this cause and effect, this action and result, this natural law of karma, that if we cause harm to other beings, then that harm is going to come back to us. So you ask yourself in terms of what is wholesome and what is unwholesome in something like masturbation, who are you harming? What is the being that you're harming that's going to come back to you? Well, if you understand the definition of masturbation, it's done as a individual thing. You're doing this to yourself. There's only one being involved, your own self. So if somebody is masturbating, it's not going to cause harm to other beings. So no harm is going to come back to you in that situation from other beings. So while you may have been taught that masturbation is unwholesome, it can actually be used in wholesome ways. Let me give you some examples. Let's say somebody has unchastity. Say that they have four, five, six partners having sex, and now they've gotten on this path to enlightenment and they realize they would like to bring this down to one partner. But yet they have this extremely high craving for sexual contact. So they've decided I'm going to now be loyal and faithful to this one partner, but I'm used to having sex with four, five, six people. And this high craving of sexual contact is still in the mind. So maybe they choose to use masturbation as a way to kind of ease the craving of sexual craving down a bit in order to bring their conduct into being loyal and faithful to this one person. So I'm not saying that someone should masturbate or they can masturbate or they should look at doing that frequently or often, but you need to look at what you've been taught in the past may not actually be the truth because if masturbation helps somebody go from five partners to one, it can be used as a healthy practice. Ultimately, to get to enlightenment, they would need to extinguish masturbation 100%. But in that process of gradually extinguishing the craving, they might use masturbation as a way to temper their sexual cravings and bring it down to only one partner. Another way someone might use it is just say somebody has craving to rape. 
and rape individuals. Well, maybe by using masturbation, it kind of brings the sexual craving down and they don't have this craving to go rape an individual. So while you may have been taught that completely avoid masturbation at all costs, it's unwholesome and it's a really bad thing to, to do, as long as you understand what your goals are and what you're working towards, masturbation can actually be beneficial in certain situations. It's kind of like this. If you were trying to temper your sexual craving and bring it down to one partner, or ultimately you decide to extinguish sexual craving 100% and get rid of sex in your practice, well, as you choose to do that and you no longer have sex, there's going to be this building of the craving in the mind. There's still going to be that craving to have sex. It's almost like the water on the dam is rising and rising and rising and rising. And it's putting more and more pressure on the dam. And the dam is about to break open. And somebody might go back to having sex with two, three, four partners again. Well, if you can use a little bit of masturbation in order to temper that craving and bring it down so there's not as much pressure, then you can actually work towards this goal of bringing your partners down to just one or ultimately none if you decide to extinguish sexual craving. So when we look at these precepts and we look at all the Buddhist teachings, some people tend to try to like this black and white. It's either wholesome or it's unwholesome. It's right, it's wrong, it's good, it's bad. Well, you can't look at things that way as it relates to training the mind. When you look at training the mind, there's this big, wide, gray area. And as long as you understand what you're headed towards and you're using these things wisely, you can actually use something like masturbation in order to extinguish your sexual cravings. So that might be something that you choose to do. If you're not masturbating now, I'm not suggesting that you go out and start doing that. But if you are observing that you have multiple partners and you'd like to bring it down to one, this might be the thing that helps you do that. Or if you have one partner now and both of you have decided that you're gonna extinguish sexual craving, masturbation might be the thing that helps you to kind of ease the pressure out of the mind that as you feel the craving for sexual contact go up, you can use a little bit of masturbation to bring that craving down and you might have to spread that out over multiple months or even years before you fully and completely extinguish your sexual craving. So there's this large gray area that you need to look at with any of these teachings of the Buddha and keep your mind focused on the actual end goal of what you're trying to accomplish. As long as you're not harming through your sexual contact, you're not causing harm to other beings, so therefore harm isn't coming to you. And with masturbation, you're not causing harm to other beings because there's only one being involved. But if you get addicted to masturbation and you do it obsessively multiple times a day, this is where you're now causing harm to your own mind and you're gonna to need to slowly back off of that in order to get to the point where the mind isn't obsessed with these pleasant feelings that come through our sexual organs. So keep that in mind as you go forward in your practice. Sex with animals, an animal can't consent to us having sex with them. So this wouldn't be a wise thing to actually do as part of one's practice you would be causing harm to that animal and you would be causing harm to yourself. There's all kinds of illnesses and problems that can come about if someone chooses to have sex with animals. Additionally, pornography. This isn't something that was in the book. I just added this in the last couple days. 
So you can go read what I had to write about that if you would like. But pornography is something that allows the mind to have this craving, desire, attachment. There's this longing, a strong eagerness to view these images. This didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. There was no way to capture images and view them later in what we call pornography. But today, you are able to do that. And while this isn't causing harm necessarily, any direct harm, there is indirect harm that the people who are working to do that work, by us providing financial support for that to occur, there is some indirect harm that's being done there. And also there's some harm being done to your own mind in that the mind can become very obsessed with pornography, become very addicted to it. The person can become very withdrawn. The very thing that motivates somebody to indulge in pornography is that they're looking for intimacy. They're looking for close relationships. And oftentimes when you indulge in pornography, it takes you out of the world and kind of in this fantasy world. And now even when you do choose to get a partner, the partner can't really fulfill what you experience in this fantasy world. So even when you look to get this intimacy going on with a real life partner, it doesn't quite fulfill the mind as the way that the pornography does. So pornography is like a self-sabotaging pursuit that we actually are looking for intimacy. We turn to pornography and we kind of self-sabotage the mind where it's like a downward spiral that the more we get into that world, the more we end up harming our own mind. We oftentimes become socially awkward that our mind becomes very obsessed when we're in daily life because we are kind of mind is indulged in this fantasy world of this pornography. So if you currently are using pornography, what you should choose to do is kind of gradually ease away from that. If you're not using it now, then that's great that you don't have to deal with that. But this is something that would need to ultimately be eliminated from one's practice in order to get to enlightenment. Let me pause here and see what questions you guys have on the third precept. I had a question about relationships that don't cause harm outside of the law, for instance. In the past and even in current day, there have been places that made illegal interracial relationships or same-sex partners, and this can seemingly cause harm through the law or through societal expectation, yet we know that according to the precept that they don't necessarily cause harm to others. So I was just wondering how that works here. Yeah, this is what I was talking about where humanity's laws are imperfect. Humanity, when we try to make laws, we get them wrong all the time. And throughout history, we've gotten them wrong in a lot of different cases. And that's why when you start living your life through the natural laws of existence, which is a much higher law, and that is a perfect law, that's why we call the Buddha the perfectly enlightened one, because he understood these natural laws perfectly. His mind was untainted and unpolluted. He could clearly see these natural laws perfectly because the natural laws of existence are perfect. So if you practice and develop your life practice to understand the natural laws of existence and you practice in that way, then you know you won't be causing harm to any beings. And you can look at humanity's laws and you'll never be worried, you'll never be fearful, you'll never be scared because you're practicing a law that's much higher than humanity's laws and you'll never have any problems with 
the government because you're practicing a law that's much higher than what the government is actually practicing. We have a question from Adrian as well. What about persons who identify as being bisexual? Same thing is that there's no harm in having sex with someone of opposite gender or same gender, but you should only do that with just one partner at a time, being loyal, committed, having a deep relationship. And if it's going to be with a man and you're a man, then you just have that one relationship. Or if you in that relationship and you move on and now you're a man and you decide to have sex with a female, then you should have sex with just that female, only one relationship at a time. That's going to ensure that your practice of sexual conduct is not going to cause harm to others. Adrian also has another question. I'm a mother of three sons, and what I know from my experience in education and social work and human development, it seems that masturbation is far more important to males, but not isolated to it. Men seem to need visual stimulation, i.e. masturbation to pornography. What is the middle way? Well, if somebody is going to masturbate, then they can choose how they are going to do that. What I'm sharing here is that in order to get to enlightenment, we would have to eliminate all that, right? We'd have to eliminate masturbation and pornography. But there is this middle way that if you're trying to bring your sexual conduct into kind of more of just having sex with one partner, or you're trying to get rid of sex altogether, then you might choose to use some masturbation to kind of bridge the gap, so to speak. And if somebody chooses to use some visual images, then yeah, they're, they're going to be causing themselves some challenges there. But this practice is a self journey. It's a self pursuit. When or if you choose to let these things go is up to you. What I'm sharing with you here is what is the natural laws? What is the way to move the mind to the enlightened mental state? But when somebody chooses to let these things go is up to them. I have students that share with me that they masturbate or they use pornography and things like this, but they would like to have some help to move away from those things. And I help them with that and they gradually work on it. There's no judgment or anything like that. So where in some traditions you learn something like this and the expectation is that you click your fingers and everybody has to follow those rules or those commandments right away. That's not what the Buddhist teachings are at all. What these are is saying, okay, this is the path. This is the direction to enlightenment. But of course, it's going to take you many years to evolve and to grow and gradually train the mind in that direction. So if somebody right now is choosing to use masturbation with pornography, then that's where they're at right now. But if they chose to get on this path and they would like to move closer to enlightenment, then they would need to gradually diminish these things in order to get closer and closer to enlightenment. But when or if they choose to do that is their personal choice. So it seems like the rule of thumb is really harm, regardless of societal expectation or law. If we're in a sexual relationship and we're not causing harm to others, then we can say that that's most likely acceptable. And if we are causing harm, then, then it's not. It seems to really boil down to that. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, what you should think about is you don't have to meet anybody's expectations, right? If society says masturbation's wrong, well, 
society has a lot of misperceptions. Society has a lot of ignorance, a lot of delusion, a lot of confusion around these type of traditions, around this type of training. And even though the vast majority of people around you might say, masturbation is wrong, you should never do masturbation. Well, if you understand this natural law of gamma, which is what the Buddha is sharing with you and helping you to see, then you can see like, okay, it's about cause and effect, action, result. It's about not causing harm to other beings. How am I causing harm to another being with masturbation? Because there's no other beings involved here. So rather than relying on the expectations and the misperceptions of the people around you, what you're doing as part of a practitioner on this path is you're on this independent journey to uncover and discover the truth so that you can have wisdom. And the more that you uncover this wisdom and you discover this wisdom, then you can practice in a way that leads to more and more improved results. And when you're practicing in this way, it's not going to match to the, what people are doing around you. That's why when we were talking about that first precept about euthanasia of animals or humans or even war, right? Around the world, like capital punishment is somewhat common. Going to war is somewhat common. Euthanasia is somewhat common. But if you did those things and participated in those things, it's going to cause harm and therefore harm is going to come to you. And same thing here is there are situations where people are saying that masturbation is all wrong. You should never do it. It's absolutely unwholesome. It's horrible. Well, that's why I'm, what I'm sharing with you is not rules. They're not commandments. What I'm doing is giving you some things to think about to help you understand this natural law of gamma, that if you understand that it's about not causing harm to others, ask yourself with masturbation, who are you causing harm to that that harm is going to come back to you? Well, there's no one else involved, so you're not causing harm to anyone. So rather than just conform to the expectations of what other people are telling you around you, what the Buddha is encouraging you to do is investigate his teachings examine his teachings, learn them, reflect on them and practice so that you can see the truth for yourself. That way you don't have to conform to what other people are telling you, but you can see the truth for yourself. And if you understand the natural law of gamma, that it's about not causing harm to others because therefore it will cause harm to you, then you'll see that something like masturbation, you can see very clearly that, yeah, I'm not causing harm to anyone. And as long as I'm not causing harm to myself, through getting addicted to it and being obsessive about it, then I can do this occasionally in order to help me kind of bring my cravings down to either one partner or to extinguish sexual craving entirely, right? That would be how you could use it in a wholesome way. Thank you. There are no more questions at this time. All right, let's go to number four. This is the fourth precept. This one relates to speech. If you remember, part of the Eightfold Path is right speech. Well, this plugs into that one. The other ones that we've talked about so far are part of right action. Killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct, those are part of right action. This one is part of right speech. The Buddha's words here are abandoning false speech, refraining from false speech, a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. So if you remember in the Eightfold Path, when we talked about right speech, we had the five factors of well-spoken speech. 
and the five factors, the first one is what you speak, speak at the right time. What you say is true. That's where this one plugs in. Speak gently, speak beneficially, and speak with a mind of loving kindness. Well, this particular one is honing in on that second factor, but the Buddha is illuminating it more for you and helping you to understand why you should speak the truth. He's saying abandoning false speech, refraining from false speech, a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. Because if you went around lying in your profession or in your personal life, people wouldn't see you as a truth speaker. People wouldn't be able to rely on you. You wouldn't be considered trustworthy. You wouldn't be considered dependable. You would be deceiving the world and you would have all kinds of complications in your personal life, in your professional life. People would lie to you. People wouldn't be able to rely on you. Here in Thailand, we have something called barami. This is a Thai word, but I'm going to explain it to you because it's very important to understand. There's this word called barami. What barami is, is one who people listen to. In these different villages around Thailand, there's typically elders in the village that people know that these people are living a very good life. And if you need help, you can go to these elders and they will kind of help you with your relationships or problems that you're having. These are people who are very well established in the community. And it's the one who people listen to because they have barami. They've established barami within the community that people listen to them because they're wise and they have wisdom. Well, in order for you to be influential within your home life, with your children, with your partner, or in your professional life, you're going to need barami in order to be successful in your personal professional life. You're going to need to be one who people listen to, not a deceiver of the world, dependable, trustworthy, one to be relied on. And when you speak the truth, what you're developing is you're developing barami because everybody knows every time you open your mouth, you're always speaking the truth. And that's one of the ways that you establish one who people listen to, barami. The Buddha understood this so well that he has this other teaching that he shares where he's talking to his son. And he says to his son, even so unwise and empty, Rahula, is the recluseship or the life practice of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. So too, Rahula, when one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil, I say, that one would not do. Therefore, Rahula, you should train yourselves thus. I will not speak a falsehood even as a joke. So even when the Buddha told a joke, and most people don't associate a Buddha as someone who tells a joke, but a Buddha is a human being. They have a character. They have a personality. They tell jokes too. They like to have fun, right? When they tell jokes, an enlightened being, a Buddha, doesn't even lie when they're telling a joke because they're establishing barami, the one who people listen to. So if you get in the habit of every time you open your mouth, you're always telling the truth, then your mind doesn't have to be shaken up and figure out, what did I talk to Manal about? What did I talk to Chrissy about? What did I talk to Nick about? And trying to sort this out and kind of figuring out 
Who did you say what to who? If you're always speaking the truth, your mind can be at ease no matter who you speak to because you always just speak the truth. You don't have all these conflicts to try to sort out in your mind. Your mind can be calm and steady and stable because you're always speaking the truth. Even when you tell a joke and you establish this bother me or one who people listen to. The other thing that you can look at here is where the Buddha talks about this, where he says, when one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil, I say, that one would not do. So if you have people around you who tell deliberate lies, the Buddha is saying there's no evil that that person would be unwilling to do. So in terms of creating wholesomeness and wholesome friendships around you, having associates and colleagues, or maybe if you're a boss and you're hiring employees, you would look for people who aren't telling lies because people who tell lies, the Buddha is saying there's no evil that they would not be willing to do. And you're not interested in having some people like that around you. So it would be very wise for you to cultivate your own practice where you're always telling the truth so that then people can rely on you and you can be more influential. Your mind won't be shaken up. It can be at ease that you're always telling the truth. But also when you choose to have friends or colleagues or business partners or if you're an employer, different people around you, if you decide to hire people to work at your house, always be sure that you look for people who aren't telling lies because then you're surrounding yourself with people who are telling the truth and your mind can be at ease because you can trust everybody around you and you're never fearful of what may or may not happen or transpire in your life. Let's see what questions you guys have on this one. I had a question on this quote, when one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, then there is no evil, I say that one would not do. That's a very powerful quote. And I was wondering, what do you think the Buddha means by this? Do you think that he's saying that essentially the things that motivate lies are the same things that motivate murder and things of that nature? Exactly. If somebody's willing to dive into telling a deliberate lie, then they're willing to do any evil, unwholesome conduct because they're willing to do that. They're willing to do other things too. And if you keep that in mind, then when you interact with somebody and you start meeting people and you start seeing people who are telling lies, if you continue to choose to be around that person and then they steal from you or they backstab you or they gossip or they slander you or any of these other things that could happen, maybe they end up trying to steal your sexual partner, your life partner. If those things happen, it's a result of your decisions because you saw the lies, but you chose to continue to be around this person and associate with this person. So while they chose to steal, it was your choice to associate with them. So we're always working on our own mind, but part of creating a life that is peaceful is ensure that you have surrounded yourself with good, wholesome people. So where you see someone that is telling lies, this is a red light for you that, okay, this is somebody that I'm most likely not interested in being around. You may need to talk with that person. You may need to flush that out and see if it really is a lie or are you just mistaking yourself and see is there a pattern of lies here? And if there are, it would be fairly wise for you to choose to step away from that relationship. And this includes white lies, as people say, and lies by omission. It, it's really just about 
always generating truth in our conversations. Is that correct? Right. There's no such thing as a wholesome lie that we should always be truthful. And I gave this example, I think, recently, James, when we were talking about like, you know, it's kind of common that we talk and we think that if somebody comes to us and says, hey, honey, what do you think about this dress? Do I look nice? That we're supposed to just say, oh, yeah, you look beautiful, even though inside we might not think that way. There's other things that you can say. There's other things that you can do. I mean, the whole goal there is for that person to feel confident in the clothes that they're wearing. So rather than tell a white lie and say, oh, yeah, I think you look great when in reality you don't feel that they do look great. But at the same time, you're not interested in saying you look horrible because that's going to degrade their uh, confidence. Instead, what you say is, I think your smile's beautiful or, you know, does it really matter what I think? You know, what matters is that you like the dress that you're wearing, right? That's what really matters. Um, So you kind of find these ways to kind of answer the question but you kind of cast it in a way that's positive and uplifting and encouraging. As you progress on this path, you can see beauty in everything where, you know, it doesn't matter what someone's wearing, that you can see beauty in everything. So you won't have this preference or this strong dislike or this strong like. You'll just be able to see beauty in everything. So you can just always say, yeah, you look beautiful. You look outstanding. I love your smile. Let's go. Let's go have fun. Um, So you should never put yourself in a situation where you're even telling a white lie because that's going to ultimately hurt your own mind and it's going to hurt your relationship because you're going to be conflicted inside because you're not telling the truth. Just always, 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 always tell the truth in every situation and you have nothing to worry about. We have a question from T. Cartoons for kids have lots of fun characters with emotions like rabbits, cats, etc. talking. Are those cartoons a big lie that I should not let my baby watch? What about movies? Are they lying? These aren't lying. These are creative expressions. These are artwork. You know, people, when they see a rabbit in a cartoon, we know that those are not truly rabbits that are speaking. It's artwork. It's entertainment. And oftentimes those things are being done in order to educate our children. So there's nothing there that's a lie. If you see that the program is teaching things that are lies, then you probably won't be interested in having your child watch that. But just in terms of animals that are cartoons that are talking, that's not a lie. That's just entertainment and creative expression. But if you listen to the programming, if there's lies going on in the programming, that they're teaching that the world's flat, for example, and we know that the world's round, then that's probably something that you would like to avoid your child watching because it's going to dilute the mind and uh, cause problems for the child in trying to learn that content. He also has a question going back to the third precept. To get to enlightenment, does it mean no more relationships with anyone anymore, being alone? Sounds like it's still craving for deleting attachments, right? But the middle way is allowing us to get a faithful partner. So does it mean the middle way is not helping us to the enlightenment state of mind? The middle way is going to be an enlightened mind, that if you practice the middle way, the mind's going to be enlightened. But that doesn't mean that you don't have relationships. In fact, an enlightened mind is going to be able to have many, many, many healthy Uh, relationships in the world. They're going to be able to be friends and friendly with countless people. But 
in order to get to that first and second stage of enlightenment, you can still have a life partner. You can still have sexual contact. It's not until you choose to move to that third or fourth stage of enlightenment is where sexual contact needs to be eliminated. But for most people, that's way down the road. And you may decide, depending on your age, that you're going to just move into that first and second stage of enlightenment and kind of hang out there for a while and still enjoy sexual contact. And then when you're ready and if you're ready, you might then choose to go the rest of the way and eliminate sexual contact. But that might be when you're 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. Who knows when? I would have never told you when I was 20 or 30 years old that I would be here today at age 47 having extinguished sexual contact. I wouldn't think that I would have ever done that. Based on what I was experiencing when I was 20 and 30 years old, I thought I'd be on my deathbed still having sexual contact. Because when you're that young, you're really craving it. You're really enjoying every last little ounce of it. But everybody does kind of get to a point where you've done that enough and you kind of observe like, yeah, what's kind of one more time? But not everybody's going to arrive to that point at the same time. Some people never really have a liking to sexual contact, even when they're younger. Some people don't extinguish it until they're 50, 60, 70. Some people never extinguish it. Some people are 90, 100 years old, still interested in having sexual contact. So that's why this is an independent practice. And you can have partners, you can have friends, you can have life partners and still have a very enjoyable life along this path. Because even in that first and second stage of enlightenment, there's this significantly diminishing of discontentedness. Someone who's attained the second stage of enlightenment and still has a life partner and still has somebody who they're having sexual contact with, your sexual relationship will be beyond what you ever experienced at other times because by the time you've cultivated your mind to the point of the second stage of enlightenment there's this deep compassion there's this loving kindness there's this real interest in pleasing others there's this interest in not causing harm to others and you'll probably see that as a person in the second stage of enlightenment having sex versus someone who's off the path having sex your sexual encounters are actually going to be more enjoyable in that second stage of enlightenment because there's going to be a different feeling and a different interest and in having this mutually beneficial experience where when we're off the path, maybe we're more selfish and we're just interested in having sex for selfish reasons, where when we cultivate our mind to the point we're in that second stage of enlightenment and perhaps we're still having sex, then there's this there's selfishness has pretty much been eradicated and it's more of a mutually beneficial experience that is very enjoyable for both people. But then at some point, you're going to probably decide to extinguish that perhaps. And then when you're ready to do that, then you're kind of set up nicely in that second stage of enlightenment to make your trek to all the way to enlightenment and completely eliminate sensual desire so that the mind can be fully enlightened. You can get to the point in that second stage of enlightenment where you've done all the other work and you've eliminated all the other fetters and the last thing that the mind is still holding on to is sexual contact. You will have eliminated all discontentedness everywhere else in your life. But every once in a while, you're going to be interested and you're going to want to have sex and you can't have sex because your partner isn't available. The mind's going to be discontent in that situation. 
So you're still going to experience a bit of discontentedness around sexual contact. So you can actually eliminate all the other fetters, do all the other work on the entire path and significantly diminish all discontentedness. But every once in a while, you're still going to have that discontentedness. And then when you're ready to fully let go of sexual contact, your partner is as well. You decide to extinguish that. And now all discontentedness is gone whatsoever. You'll not experience any discontentedness at all because the mind no longer has a craving for sex. It's been extinguished. Thank you, David. That's all we have for now. All right. So let's look at the very last precept, which is typically translated as no intoxicants. Well, the Buddha talked much more illuminating language than that. What he said was, refraining from strong drink and sloth-producing drugs, substances that cause heedlessness, the basis for heedlessness. In order to understand this precept, you need to understand this word heedlessness. Heedlessness is careless, thoughtless, inattentive, uncalm, unaware, or unmindful. Remember, this path is all about purifying the mind, In order to purify the mind, you need to have awareness of mind. In order to have awareness, if you're using substances that cause heedlessness, then it's going to take the mind away from mindfulness. It's going to take it away from concentration. It's going to have this heedlessness, this carelessness, this thoughtlessness. And by having a mind that has heedlessness, you're more likely to actually do the other four, the killing, the stealing, the sexual misconduct, and the lying. If you go into a prison system or into jails, you might meet people that are there for murder, for robbery, for stealing, for other things like this. But the vast majority of those prisoners will tell you, about 80% of them will tell you, the thing that really brought them to jail was substances that cause heedlessness. Because while they murdered, they only murdered because they were high and they were trying to get money for drugs. Or they might have robbed a bank, but the only reason why they robbed a bank is because they were trying to feed a drug habit. Or they might have gotten a car accident and killed somebody, but the only reason why that happened is because of the substances that cause heedlessness. So having a mind that is heedless is going to make it more likely for you to have problems with all these other precepts and all the other parts of the path to enlightenment. So by extinguishing the mind craving or desire to take in substances that cause heedlessness, you'll be able to be more thoughtful and you'll be able to purify the mind better because you have this awareness of mind or this mindfulness. With that in mind, it's important to understand certain aspects of our life and certain substances that are around. Because as you see during the lifetime of the Buddha, it was strong drink or sloth producing drugs. Well, we have things like marijuana today that some people consider a drug, but there's a lot of evidence that shows it has medical benefits as well. And there's a really big, important gray area to navigate and understand as it comes to marijuana. With the marijuana plant, there's two aspects to the plant. There's THC, which produces the high, and there's CBD, which produces the medical benefits. If somebody is looking for a high, they will typically smoke or ingest marijuana that's high in THC. If somebody is looking for medical benefits, they will typically ingest it as an oil and they will look for CBD. Only the person who's actually ingesting 
the plant knows what they're actually ingesting it for, whether it's for a high or whether it's for medical benefits. There's irrefutable evidence that marijuana has medical benefits associated with it. But the way that you ingest it is going to be important. Whereas if you ingest it as an oil or an edible, this is going to not cause harm to the physical body if you've got a high level of CBD, which goes towards the medical benefits. Whereas if you're smoking a plant, that smoke is gonna go into the lungs and it's gonna harm the body, it's gonna harm the lungs. And there, if there's heedlessness as well, that's going to be harmful. So even if you're looking for the CBD in the marijuana plant and you're smoking it, even though you're doing it for medical benefits, you're still harming the lungs of the physical body, which is gonna cause harm to you. So if you're looking to ingest marijuana for medical benefits like seizures, pain relief, things like this, you would look at getting a version of the plant that is high in CBD and take it through an oil or an edible, which will ensure that you're not causing harm to the physical body. This is really important to understand as it relates to marijuana, because now more and more governments are opening up and allowing people to use this plant for medical purposes. There's some people that say that they're taking marijuana in order to eliminate stress or anxiety or these other things that we know that the Buddhist teachings are actually going to eliminate. Marijuana is not going to eliminate stress. It's not going to eliminate anxiety. It's not going to eliminate PTSD. It's not going to eliminate any of these things. It can soften the effects of it, but it's not going to eliminate it because there's nothing that the marijuana plant can do to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. The cause of stress, anxiety, PTSD, and all these other mental issues that we're seeing is craving, desire, attachment. So if we eliminate craving, desire, attachment, we can eliminate stress, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, and all these other things that you're going to hear about when we get into chapter 22 of the book. So if there's people out there that are ingesting marijuana for stress, anxiety, and I'm sure that you think that that's a medical condition of having stress and anxiety, in reality, it's just a factor of having craving, desire, attachment in the mind. And if you eliminate that, you won't need the marijuana. You won't need to ingest marijuana because you won't have stress and anxiety. Cigarettes are something that have no medical benefit whatsoever. We've come to realize that over multiple decades now, and a large majority of the population are moving away from cigarettes. There's nothing but drugs and toxins in these and they need to be eliminated in order to get to enlightenment because if there's craving, desire, attachment there, it's going to hinder the mind from attaining enlightenment and cigarettes are causing harm to the physical body and there's even secondhand smoke that is causing harm to the people around us as well. You should pay close attention to any prescription medicines that you're taking because there are some prescription medicines that can be relied on to cause heedlessness. Even though the prescription might have a certain pain relief component to it, and we might start taking it for pain relief, oftentimes the mind and the body gets addicted to it, and now it sticks around and it continues to be used and abused for heedlessness. And if you observe any of that in your practice, you're gonna to need to clean that up in order to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment to prescription medications. 
Caffeine is a drug, it's a stimulant, it's something that's used throughout the world, it's completely legal for people to use it, but there's no medical purpose for caffeine. It's used as a stimulant, it oftentimes produces excitement in the mind, and it oftentimes makes it difficult to sleep. So you would be really wise to eliminate caffeine from your ingesting in your food supply, because if you ingest caffeine, you're gonna observe that it's very hard to keep the mind in the middle with concentration, clarity, and focus, because whenever you ingest caffeine, the mind's gonna to go to this excited state. So by you purging and eliminating and purifying your diet to eliminate caffeine, you'll notice that the mind will be more stable in the middle. As you choose, if you choose to let go of caffeine, you might notice that there's headaches, you might notice that there's dry mouth, you might notice that there's shaking in the body. Let this be a reminder to you that caffeine is indeed a drug because those are the withdrawal symptoms that the body goes through as you start purging caffeine from your food intake. The body is going to go through a withdrawal period of about three to five days and you need to get through that in order to get to the other side where the mind can be more stable and steady and you can see that you don't need caffeine you can use fruit you can have fruit smoothies you can drink other things that are healthy for the body that are nourishing and hydrating to the body but caffeine is only going to take the mind away from being able to be stable and in the middle sugar is something that we ingest and we need to ingest to a certain degree in order to maintain our health but if you indulge in sugar too much, too quick, it can also create an excited condition in the mind. So you're gonna to wanna to watch your sugar intake. And if you've ever had a sugar high and then you've crashed after it, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. But some moderate sugar or moderation in sugar can actually be somewhat healthy for the body because the body needs a little bit of sugar in order to maintain its function. But if you indulge in a significant amount of sugar, then you're gonna notice headaches, you're gonna notice this excited condition of the mind, and once again, it's gonna be very difficult to maintain the middle. There's psychedelic substances like LSD, PCP, uh, there's uh, psychedelic mushrooms, there's other substances that cause psychedelic experiences. And in some parts of the world, they say that this is actually a stimulant that produces something like enlightenment or helps you along this path. While being under the influence of psychedelic substances is a very unique experience and can open the mind up to some interesting things, it's not actually going to produce enlightenment or take you further on this path because the mind is still hooked to this temporary substance, to this impermanent condition of the psychedelic substance. What enlightenment is doing is naturally training the mind to get to this awakened mental state of enlightenment where it's permanent. As long as you rely on psychedelic substances to have this inward introspection and this reflection, then you're not doing the work to investigate the teachings and have that introspection and that reflection, that inward looking eye to arise this wisdom naturally on your own. So if you rely on the psychedelic substance to do anything for you whatsoever, then you're still craving, you're still addicted to that psychedelic substance. You have to let that go and develop your practice where you can naturally train the mind to have this inward reflection 
and get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy without any substances whatsoever. Substances aren't going to produce enlightenment because what you're going to hear next week when we talk about craving, anger, and ignorance is the primary thing that's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. While craving, desire, attachment is what's causing discontentedness, it's ignorance or delusion or confusion, this unknowing of true reality that's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state because it doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. The only way to remedy that is through wisdom, through acquiring wisdom, through learning in classes like this and using books and resources and things like that. A psychedelic substance isn't going to produce that wisdom for you that's going to allow you to ascend to this enlightened mental state. So in order for someone to get to enlightenment, they would need to let go of any psychedelic substances. So let me see what questions you guys have on this particular precept. We have a question of clarification from Radius on YouTube. What about nutritional sports drinks with caffeine? I'm a cyclist and use products that fuel the body on long rides. Yeah, the same thing is caffeine is that stimulant, right? It's giving you that temporary kick, that temporary excitement. But if you train your mind through this path to enlightenment, you're going to need to naturally produce those type of qualities in the mind. There's what the Buddha called the seven factors of enlightenment. And one of those seven factors of enlightenment is called the enlightenment factor of energy. You can't practice the enlightenment factor of energy while you're using this substance like caffeine in order to produce the excitement. You have to be able to naturally produce that with a naturally pure mind. So while you may be relying on that sports drink now, if you do some research, you'll be able to find sports drinks that don't have caffeine and can provide you maybe some of the other nutrients and minerals that you need as an athlete, but you can get rid of that caffeine to produce this energy without having to rely on a substance because that substance is impermanent. You'll go through a high with the caffeine and then you'll drop off and then you'll go through a high and you'll drop off. And this is that impermanent condition of the caffeine. But if you train your mind through this path to enlightenment, you can get to the point where the mind has permanent energy, where you don't have to rely on this substance. The longer that you hold on to this substance, you're not going to be able to produce this natural energy in the mind and in the body that allows you to sustain your performance over the course of your day. Because one of the aspects of this path to enlightenment is to bring the mind to the middle where it performs optimally. And what we tend to do in modern society is we think we need all these substances and all these supplements in order for the body and the mind to perform optimally. But in reality, it's by eliminating all of these substances out of our life and training the mind to reside in the middle that we can allow the mind and train the mind to perform optimally. And once the mind's performing optimally, the body will perform optimally as well. We don't need all of these substances around us in order to get the body and the mind to perform optimally. This is part of the delusion that we walk around with in the unenlightened state, thinking that we need all of these things, all of these material things in order to perform optimally, but we really don't. We have a question from the team. 
My father can't stop smoking or drinking coffee. My baby can't stop craving for sweet things. My mother has high blood pressure and can't stop taking her daily pill. Please guide me through this situation. Your practice shouldn't be to train your parents or other people. This is all about you training your own mind. So you need to work on your practice. And if they would like to practice these things, they can, but they would need to practice this path to enlightenment as a comprehensive practice. While right now they might find it difficult for your dad, for example, to let go of cigarettes or something else, but that's because he's not on the path. He's not actively training his mind. None of these things you can just snap your fingers and eliminate. I mean, the mind has to gradually be trained to let go of these things as a comprehensive practice. But T, you should be focusing on your practice, not trying to convince your mom or your dad to let go of these things. Your mom and dad, if they're going to move to enlightenment, they have to choose to do that on their own through their own choices. You shouldn't be trying to force them or control them or even convince them. You can make these teachings available to them, but it's up to them to choose to learn and practice. And when they put together and develop their entire practice, that's where their mind can then be gradually trained to let go. And part of the letting go is training the mind through breathing mindfulness meditation to let go of things like this. But for somebody to just go from smoking to not smoking, that's very difficult unless they're actively working on the path and they're choosing to do that. But you can't choose to do that for your dad. He has to choose to do that for himself. So you should let go of wanting other people to be a certain way and instead focus on your own journey in your own practice. So when we look at the drugs on this list, it's really best to just think about this fifth precept as they can create a bridge toward causing harm essentially because one may think that, well, I can smoke marijuana and it by myself and it's not necessarily going to harm anyone, but it creates the conditions in one's mind that, that does create harm. Is, is that the right way to think about that right by you taking substances that cause heedlessness is diluting your mind you have carelessness you have thoughtlessness you have this inattentive uncalm unaware unmindful mind and you're more likely to drive and get in an accident and kill yourself or kill others you're more likely to get in a fight you're more likely to lie to people you're more likely to have sexual misconduct because you're diluting your mind with these substances someone who's on this path you're looking to purify the mind and bring the mind to the middle so that it'll perform optimally. You're looking to purify the mind. So why would you pollute the mind with a substance if you're looking to purify it through training the mind naturally? So by letting go of these substances, then you've purified the mind in terms of these substances that they're not affecting you any longer so that now you can focus your time, effort, and energy in purifying your mind and your conduct and all the other ways on this path as long as somebody's holding on to substances they're not yet fully 100 percent committed to purifying the mind because they're still polluting the body and they're still polluting the mind with this substance one of the ways that i got away from substances that cause heedlessness is i started looking at them as poison right if you start looking at whiskey or beer or wine or any other substances that you might take as poison that is truly polluting the body and is truly polluting the mind and then when the mind is in that condition you're more likely to have challenges at work 
You're more likely to have challenges in your personal relationships. You're more likely to cause problems in all of these different precepts and aspects of these eightfold path that we talked about two weeks ago that one of the biggest things you can do is just get rid of substances that are causing heedlessness as a commitment to yourself that you're now going to work on purifying the mind and realize that you might have to do that gradually and slowly that there's no expectation from me that any student should be able to learn this and then snap their fingers and eradicate all this stuff it takes many years to gradually move your mind away from these things but you wouldn't be able to do that if you weren't in a class with a teacher like me that is explaining to you what you need to do when or if you ever choose to do it is your choice there's no expectation from me there's no judgment from me about if you do this or when you do this but you need to know the path and that's what this class and this chapter is about is helping you understand these precepts in detail so that then you can choose at your own time and place of when and how to clean up your conduct to be more in line with these five precepts. Because as you do, it's going to significantly improve the condition of your life practice and the condition of your mind. And it seems to ultimately, so much of this path is about taking power over our mind and these substances take that power away. So it, it seems very clear why this would be a, in contrast to the whole rest of the path. I agree with that 100%, James. And I also noticed that there's several things in this list that, that are legal, and that just seems like a thing that we talked about before in this class with whether it be murder or relationships, but it seems like a major theme of this class is to not confuse legality with what is right, essentially. Exactly, because even going back to the fourth precept, it's not illegal to go around and tell people lies it's not illegal unless you're under oath in a court, right? Or unless you're at a government facility where you've taken an oath or something. It's not illegal to tell lies. So legally, you could go around and tell lies all day long if you'd like to. But look at what that's going to do to your life. Legally, you can go out and drink alcohol. Legally, you can go out and get high with things like marijuana or other things, even caffeine and things like this. Legally, you can go out and do all these things. But if you're looking to purify your mind and get to this optimal state where you have this focus, this concentration, this clarity of mind, this deep memory, where now you have eradicated all this discontentedness from the mind and it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, you're going to need to elevate your practice slowly but surely beyond what exists in humanity's laws and move closer to the natural laws of existence. Thank you, David. That seems to be all the questions we have for today. All right. Well, this is a very involved conversation, as you see, that five precepts, five simple statements that the Buddha made. You know, we can talk for hours and hours about these. The book goes through a lot of detail, details that I wasn't able to necessarily cover in today's class. So if you haven't read this chapter seven, I suggest that you read it and maybe read it multiple times and then use it to refer back to it. And if you're looking for that information that I've added recently on the five precepts, you may even be interested to download a new copy of the book because that was just updated this week with a couple of new things that people were asking me questions about. And I realized that it wasn't in the book. So I decided to add that into the book just recently. 
So the five precepts are very important. It's really wise to learn these in and out, backwards and forwards, and bring your practice up to these. And if you have children and you're looking to guide your children, these are excellent places to start with children, is helping them learn the five precepts because these are simple things that they can learn and they can learn early in life to practice in this way. Even my son at age nine, he doesn't drink any caffeine. He doesn't eat any meat. He has learned these precepts along the way. So he's growing up just knowing that this is a better way to conduct his life, where when we grew up, we didn't necessarily have that same guidance. So if you have children, this would be a great place to start perhaps with them learning the Buddhist teachings is teaching them the five precepts. Next week on Sunday, we're going to be in chapter eight, which is titled Transforming the Three Poisons, Craving, Anger, and Ignorance. This is where you're really going to kind of explode the, your understanding about what it is that's really keeping the mind in the unenlightened state and what we need to do in order to move it to enlightenment. So far, we've been primarily talking about craving desire attachment as the cause of discontentedness, as that primary problem that the Buddha discovered that causes discontentedness. But there's these other two problems that we haven't really talked about and we haven't really explored, which is anger and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. So we're going to dive into this chapter eight next week titled Transforming the Three Poisons, Craving, Anger, and Ignorance. So feel free to read that either before or after class if you like. On Wednesday, we're going to be in the third class of our four-part series where I'm sharing Buddhist chanting and helping you to learn Buddhist chanting. So you're welcome to either attend those classes live or listen to them on the replay in Facebook, YouTube, or our podcast. Thank you all for your questions. I appreciate your participation. Really pleased that you're continuing to learn and practice these teachings. Remember to keep going with your meditation practice and building that up, as well as building up your wisdom to learn all the teachings of the Buddha. I'll see you in a future class. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.